0: Hi, everybody. Uh, this is the April 2020 edition of the Third Friday's podcast. It's a first this month, uh, not because uh, a partner, Tashia Razul, has uh, been a guest before, but mostly because we're doing this from the comfort of our own homes. Uh, you know, The last month's podcast also talked about COVID-19 and, and the board's response, so feel free to check that out. It's actually been on our uh, one of our most listened to episodes uh, out of 37 to date in the past three years. Uh, but we're going to keep moving forward with that topic. Uh, you know, I think that if you turn on the TV, if you open a web browser, you're going to have some kind of COVID-19 or virus uh, issue popping up to keep everyone aware. So why not? Let's keep uh, the discussion going. Uh, so Tashia, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Christian. Thank you for having me here today.
0: So we have a few different updates. Uh, some of them are case related, and uh, I, others are kind of industry-wide directives from the state, or, or really actions that we will be taking on all of our claims. Uh, but you know, Tashi, I, I invited you onto this show mostly uh, because of your involvement uh, with uh, a few cases. in in our office currently uh, you know we're going to do our best to uh, well we are going to do our best to refrain from uh, talking about specific names for for privacy purposes Uh, but the first case um, uh, involves uh, your team directly uh, as uh, the firm's construction practice team leader Um, and why don't you tell our audience a little bit about uh, the facts behind the you know alleged Uh, Incident.
1: Okay. So ever since the pandemic started, I've been getting a lot of questions from my clients regarding how we're going to deal with these COVID 19 claims. And initially, uh, we were thinking that there probably won't be a lot of COVID 19 claims on uh, construction job sites because the work's typically done in. you know, an open environment. There's not much uh, close contact um, in closed spaces. However, we have received our first uh, COVID-19 claim uh, arising out of um, construction. So the claimant is claiming that he was working on a job site and and he contracted COVID-19. He is currently out of work and he's seeking indemnity benefits. He is clearly asserted that he caught it from there. Um, the facts are still a little sketchy because we or he has not yet identified who he actually captured it from, contracted it from. Um, and I think that's that's going to be one of the most important things that we need to develop in the claim. Um, He is claiming lost time benefits. Uh, The date of loss is March 19th, so just about a month ago. Um, If what the CDC and the news has been reporting about COVID, he should have fully recovered by now. We have not heard that, you know, he's been hospitalized or sustained any uh, complications. That's preventing him from going back, back to work. So you know at this at this time we're not certain whether he's claiming an occupational uh, disease or whether he's just claiming that it's just a one-time accident slash illness and he just wants uh, benefits for the lost time and his medical bills paid and this is going to be an interesting case because We don't yet know how the board is going to address them, right? If the board's going to address them as an occupational or just an accident. And depending on how it's being claimed and how it's being addressed, there are different things that we're going to need to address um, or develop the record to get. So, for instance, if he's claiming occupational disease, I think he's going to have a very hard time uh, proving it. Because he'll have, he'll have to show, as you know, in New York for occupational diseases that um, the, the exposure was peculiar to his work environment, right? Now we're talking construction here. We're not talking about a nurse or a doctor or a first responder who is, who's treating uh, COVID-19 patients uh, 10 hours a day, every day, right? So, it's going to be hard to show that on a construction site, you know, exposure to COVID-19 was something that was happening every day. It's part of his job. Pretty much similar to the flu or the common cold or some other type of a temporary illness, right? I mean, I get cold and I go to work doesn't mean, make it um a very uh, distinctive or peculiar feature of my job so that if someone else else contracts it, it becomes an occupational disease. So I think he's going to have a very hard time proving an occupational disease. Um, On the flip side, though, it might be a little easier for him to prove that it's an accident, right? It's more fact-specific. He would have to show that There was someone on the job site who actually had a diagnosis, not just symptoms, diagnosis. He was working with that individual. Uh, That person was not wearing a mask or gloves. They were coughing all day. And as a result of him being in contact with him, he developed uh, COVID-19 also. The other thing is he would have to show that he himself has a diagnosis of COVID-19, right? And as we know from the news, there's still a lot of people out there who have symptoms, but it hasn't been confirmed. So maybe these people just have the common cold or the flu or something. And just because the symptoms mirror those of COVID-19, they're claiming to have a COVID-19 diagnosis, right? So that's something the claimant would have to prove also that he actually contracted COVID-19. So with all, all, all of that said and done though, um. At this point, we don't know where the board's going to go with this. We are recommending to clients to deny these COVID-19 claims. Um, This particular claim has been denied. We're waiting for the claimant to file medicals so we can get a pre conference and then move it along. But so far, he hasn't done anything. And I will also add, though, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a little rumor that – you know, the, the, the COVID-19 claims are going to be uh, presumed occupational diseases. But let's just be clear, there's been no directive from the board. There's been no change in the law indicating that they're going to be a presumptive occupational disease under workers' compensation law. And I think this really came about because the governor, maybe it was the mayor, had sent out a message saying that workers are going to be taken care of, their jobs are going to be taken care of, and I think many people interpreted this as, oh wait, they're going to get workers' compensation benefits. But the reality is, they they can be compensated, receive benefits and um, job protection under New York's Paid Family Leave Act, not workers' compensation. So clients should be handling this as non-work related and should be denying all of the cases, which is what we're doing in this particular case.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a really a great recitation of, of of how we're reacting to all of this, Tashia. I think um you touched on a couple points that uh I think we can uh, specifically delve into. You know, you mentioned the occupational claim, the difficulty of doing that, you know, even in a non-COVID world, right? Uh, it's not easy to say that Uh, the exposure you experienced was not borne by uh, just your employment, right? Construction sites, uh, even though they may be closed off to the public, they have a distinctive feature that still may be exposing the public, right? Like just because you work uh, on a construction site that, uh, let's say, has silica or asbestosis doesn't mean that the passers-by, the bystanders, you know, that are walking on the streets of Manhattan can't also be exposed to that. And I think that that uh, is certainly an argument that we make in, in a uh, a wide-ranging uh, perspective of a construction case where uh, there's nothing peculiar, like you stated, to that employment. I also think, too, the the, the accident claim uh, is, is going to be similarly tough, right? Um, you mentioned that it might be easier, but I would love to see a claimant say, nope, I knew that I contracted it on March 31st, 2020. I knew it. It was that day because John Smith didn't wear his gloves, didn't wear his mask, and he sneezed into my face. It was that particular day.
1: And the claimant's been living in a bubble for 30 days prior to that, so it couldn't have been contracted from anyone else.
0: <laughs> right, right. He was transported from the bubble, from his home, to the construction site. Right. He didn't use the subway. He didn't, uh, you know, touch any of, uh, you know, the uh, the handlebars, like on a on a street railing or a pole. Uh, he didn't come into contact with any other human being. It was actually a bubble that transferred him to uh, the job set that particular day, which I think is, is, uh, kind of, fun. I, I would actually like that to happen just for, the, I can't the, wait the to hear that. Aspect. <laughs> right, right. I would want to be the attorney, just like w- watching this happen and it all unfold. I would imagine too, with a with virtual hearings now a necessity, right? Could we get some clients that sign into the hearing to want to see this take place? Just oh, the yeah.
1: It'll definitely be a comedy act, and I, I really want to see how his attorney is going to sit there with a straight face with such an explanation. Also, but now we've 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 seen some pretty impressive things in comp, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: I, you know, I, you, you you also mentioned, um, I guess, uh, the proposal, right, to make the presumption of COVID claims compensable, uh, that for for a few days that sent uh, some shockwaves through uh, our side of the industry. Um, I've heard similar rumors that, you know, it, it, it's you know, really the, uh, the movement of, of unions across the state, right, to make sure that if they can't get their, um, their dues paying members the benefits uh, through you know, workers' compensation during um, a crisis where they know that they have no real claim to benefits, you know, if we apply the law correctly, What's the response? Well, let's just lobby for a change in the law and really strip employers and carriers of the defenses. But thankfully, uh, we have seen some uh, positive developments from uh, the state legislatures uh, in essentially saying, you know, at least not yet, right? Like there's right. nothing really to change where we are now, as a, as opposed to oh, presumption compensability for COVID-19 claims because we knew that if we know that if that were to happen, every employee who is not working right now is filing a claim. Oh, yeah, for sure. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's uh, definitely something positive we, we've seen, at least in the last few weeks. Uh, who's to say what the future will hold? Uh, but I think that, like you said, it's, it's a very big stretch for, for that to really uh, occur, basically saying that if you have COVID-19, that workers' compensation will take care of you as if there aren't the FMLA, the governmentally issued benefits that you discussed.
1: Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I hope when, you know, they contact their union or their attorneys to say, Hey, can I file a claim that, you know, the union or their attorneys are going to advise them that you can actually apply for benefits under, you know, the paid family leave act and the other, um, relief that New York has provided and I must say that you know New York has really um stepped up and opened up a lot of benefits for for you know potential um for those who suffer from COVID or need to take time off uh, to take care of someone suffering from COVID so hopefully they don't try to turn to workers comp and you know try to essentially milk the system because the other thing is too If we start seeing more and more of these claims and you know, the claimant doesn't die and you know generally they're okay after a few weeks and can return to work, I mean we've both seen how cases start with like a sprained pinky finger and then you know, the entire body is being claimed and then there's consequential psych and you know my concern is that these COVID-19 claims could turn into those claims because we have some very determined and creative claimants and claimants attorneys out there and you know so we, we really need to nip it in the butt in the very beginning right um in terms of defending de- denying and defending the claims and really just dispensing of them within the first you know uh Hearing or the or within the first few months of the claim being filed.
0: Right. I, so, I think I almost got you to say defend from day one. There we were so oh, close. Yes. <laughs> no. I, I but... was
1: leaving that for you. Because <laughs> those are your words. Right. right.
0: you're It's a good point because if you can nip it in the bud, right, you can't allege a consequential respiratory or pulmonary issue from COVID if the underlying COVID claim is disallowed. Right. So, um, essentially. Moving quickly to deny these claims, instead of allowing the record to be developed uh, through additional medical, uh, is really going to be the focus of these of these claims. And I, I know that there there are probably going to be more coming in the future because we don't know whether our case population is currently affected. Uh, you know, I guess uh, our next point about another case uh, is closer to that effect but ultimately if you're if you can get dispose of the issues earlier right you're you're, you're putting yourself in a better position uh, to defend against uh, the ancillary issues that arise from a claim that hasn't been aggressively defended in the future uh, or defended in the past right and as long as we're making the right steps now right we market ourselves to be in the right position when these medicals come in, right? Sure. Asserting our defenses, filing the right procedural paperwork, uh, all, all that stuff has to be taken care of as soon as possible. I believe we have the right team to do that for our clients. And so far, in that particular case that you're talking about, uh, you know, we've we've done our job, and we're going to be aggressive and ready to attack uh, as soon as uh, the claimant feels like he actually wants to say that his lost time is related to COVID-19. But that's going to be a a to-be-continued.
1: Yes, for sure. Um, So the other case that we have, and it's interesting because we've gotten two cases and they both involve COVID-19, but in very different situations. So the one that we just talked about is an actual COVID-19 claim. And the next claim that we have is a regular ANCR claim orthopedic injuries, but we learned that the claimant uh, died of COVID-19. So this is another way that we're going to see COVID-19 impacting our case population, already open litigated cases, right? So in this particular case, it's been open for a couple of years now. The claimant's treated, he's received benefits. um, He just filed a Second claim. Interestingly, the date of loss is a date that he's received benefits for and the first claim he filed. So I think we have a fraud issue there. And then the hearings coming up in a couple of days for the the new claim that he filed. And we just learned that he died of COVID-19. So the big question here now is how is this all going to unfold? What do we do next? Um, What's best? strategically? Should we just let it play out and see what his attorney does? Or should we recommend to our clients, um, you know, an alternative way of closing out the case, right? Without any further litigation. Um, so, So with regards to this particular case, in the first one, the first claim that he filed, there's currently an appeal pending on the issue of fraud. And the the fraud issue is really he's been alleging different date, dates of accidents and, you know, the records are inconsistent with regards to that. And his testimony has also been inconsistent. And now he's filing this second claim, alleging an injury on a day that he wasn't even working for anyone. Um, or so we believe because benefits have been um, awarded to him. So the, you know, in in reviewing these cases and given the circumstances that he's died from COVID-19, and assuming that it's actually COVID-19, and we'll get into the alternative in a second, um, you know, we have to think about what's the best strategic advice to give the clients in these situations, because I'm fairly certain that we're going to see a number of these claims, right?, um, especially where the claimants are a little older, it seems like COVID nineteen is affecting the older population, and they die of the disease. What happens to the claim at that point, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's a a really good uh, point because uh, COVID nineteen and its impact on workers' compensation is not just whether or not the claimant has a claim for causally related COVID nineteen. It's whether the impact of COVID-19 affects a case population that really has nothing to do with exposure, inhalation, um, you know, transfer of a communicable disease. Right, your 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 orthopedic injury, to, as as you cite in this particular case, can still be impacted. Uh, and in this case, uh, we did receive word. Uh, we we're looking to confirm it. Uh, I think the state of the nation makes it a little bit difficult. But I think that hearing that you're talking about is almost like a fact-finding mission, right? Does the claimant's attorney have the information that can corroborate the notes and the facts that we have, insofar as the claimant has unfortunately passed away from complications or, or uh you know the coronavirus, COVID-19 itself? Uh and if that is the case, then we would be making the argument that any benefits post date of death are unrelated. Is that fair?
1: Oh, that that's absolutely fair. That, yes. That's the argument we will be making because the death was not caused by any of the injuries in our claim. So it's unrelated, right? Um, so there cannot be a legitimate like death claim, workers' compensation death claim. So, in this particular situation that we have right now, in the first case, there's a pending appeal on fraud. <clears throat> and as a result, benefit as a result, benefits have been suspended. So the question is: do we sit back and let the board make a decision on fraud against this dead claimant, presuming he's actually dead, or should we recommend um in an effort to prevent any further litigation and you know use of resources litigation resources that the appeal be withdrawn and the benefits be paid and the case be closed because there's no way the claimant would be entitled to any additional benefits at this time anyway right so of course it's it's um our jobs uh, is is really to set forth these options to the clients um, in in a very uh, practical manner and assess the, the cost and the benefits, the pros and the cons of, you know, making a decision right now, or just sit back and wait for the, the, the board to make a decision, the claimant's attorney to file an RFA, to litigate benefits. Um, one of the downsides I can see To not closing out the claim right now is that this guy's attorney is going to somehow try to claim that the death is related to the workers' compensation claim, right? Right. And turn it into a death claim. Um, We don't don't have all the facts right now. We don't have very updated treatment records, um, any records pertaining to his death. But I guess a scenario that I'm thinking of would be, let's just say he had to be hospitalized for uh, one of his injuries, some sort of um, complication from one of his injuries. While in the hospital, he contracted COVID-19 and that resulted in his death, right? See where I'm going with this? They can yeah. they could try to argue that he contracted it because he had to go to the hospital for the work-related injury. That makes it a death claim. Um, they would the, need the to, creative
0: claimant or the creative adversary that you're talking about. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't put it past them, right, to do this kind of right.
1: thing. Right. Yeah, we've seen lots of bizarre claims in workers' comp, right? Things that just don't even make sense. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happens in this case or any other case where the claimant dies of COVID-19. But I think we also have to go back to um, the basic facts that we were talking about when we talked about the other case where the claimant is alleging uh, COVID-19 exposure on the job. Some of the the facts are going to, or some of the types of questions we ask are going to overlap because there has to be an actual diagnosis. Um, You know, we would be asking him to show that he contracted it in the hospital and not before. So is he gonna say also that he was in a bubble prior to having to go to the hospital? And then, you know, when the bubble popped in the hospital, that's when he actually contracted COVID-19. So I think we still have some very good um, defense uh, strategies that we're going to apply if a claimant tries to claim that uh, he he died as a result of COVID-19 and that it should become a Causler-related death claim. And you know, as with the other case, we also need to start defending those from now, right? So in the hearing that's coming up, we're going to try to get as much information as possible. We're st- still trying to contact the employer um, HR department to see if they've heard anything, if anything's been reported to them and start to get everything lined up from this moment uh we've already prepared the questions for the hearing to ask the claimant's attorney i'm pretty sure he's going to say he doesn't know the answer to any of the questions honestly i wouldn't be surprised if he goes in there and says oh wait i didn't even know my claimant was dead right (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, maybe maybe
0: if he didn't know that, then maybe we're not dealing with the creative adversary that we thought. Right.
1: (laughs) Oh, good point. So we know that we're not getting to like a death claim uh, being filed. So, yeah. So we'll we'll see in a couple of days what happens.
0: That's great. So uh, uh, I I would say that uh, it's a nice refresher. Right. To know that one, you know, for our first case, we're talking about. How do we defend accident claims, traumatic accident claims, uh, or, or really the the general occupational disease claims? What are the parameters that the claimant needs to uh, identify in order to uh, have the presumption of compensability be applied to their case, uh, and, and the the case law that's required for them to meet their burden, uh, as, as well as you know this this second claim, the second issue with which could even be um, just as uh, important or uh, even prolific within our case population, uh, a claimant who is currently due to receive benefits, awarded benefits, or at least is out of work and actually does have the virus, how does that affect our claim? Uh, I, I did like how you mentioned, you know, we're not just here to uh, tell you what the law says. Practical advice and uh, results-oriented uh, legal positioning is where uh, we are putting our foot uh, down to really tell our clients this is the best way to handle this claim, but also leave open other options. You know, there, there might be some uh, public relations issues affected with some of the decisions we make, and and let, letting them know exactly from a, a holistic world viewpoint of how this can affect uh, you know a business. Uh, Because we are in the business of defending employers, right? That's our trademark, defending employers. And we want to make sure that uh, we are not just their champions of workers' compensation, but also uh, their business as a whole. Uh, So I think those two cases present a good picture of what we're looking at so far. It's still pretty early. Uh, The board has issued uh, an update on labor market attachment. Now, uh, what do you know? Um, about how that directive is being applied in current cases to Shia. I don't know if uh, you've had uh, similar or different experiences than I've had and, and our teams have had uh, in going to court and litigating attachment, but it seems like the board is punting on the issue in total, right? They're saying uh, we're not going to address this until permanency classification during this crisis, they are applying Governor Cuomo's executive order to stay home as a reason to not litigate attachment. And we have a firm-wide response that's uniform across the board and being given to our clients. And for everybody who ha- does not know that, uh, what, what would you say is our response to that uh, board implementation?
1: We're litigate, litigating labor market attachments because that's what should be done. Um, my team has experienced, uh, what the judges are doing, and I personally had experienced it last week. So I had a case where it came back on the calendar for the judge to make a decision on degree of disability. He found in her favor, made a less than total, uh, disability finding, and then I raised labor market attachment, and the judge chuckled, and he said, Well, Mr. Sewell, I'm glad you raised that because now I get to read my blurb here to you and (laughs) his blurb was essentially that due to the current uh, restrictions and directions from the governor that a claimant cannot reasonably reasonably look for work and that labor market attachment is not going to be addressed at this time and that the carrier can file an RFA2 and the restrictions have been lifted to pursue labor market attachment. And I said, well, judge, the directive from the board really applies only to uh, matters that are set for classification. And uh, needless to say, he did not like that response. And his response was, well, how do you expect the claimant to go look for a job when, you know, uh, employers are closed and laying off? their employees and there's just limited resources. How is the claimant able to look for work in this situation? And, you know, so I noted my exception to him not setting it for labor market attachment. And I had a discussion with my client and we actually decided we're going to appeal that decision because I think it was an improper decision. Um, we live in the world of computers and you know the internet and online job searches and their resources from job search uh, companies and organizations that are available remotely their online classes Um, all of these things are things that claimants could be using to show that they're attached to labor market right in fact um, as you and i have discussed before it's probably even A little easier for claimants to prove labor market attachment now because, all right, um, the government um, resources for rehabilitating or helping a claimant to find a new job may not be open to the public because of the COVID-19 situation and the orders from the governor, but they're offering some remote access. There are um, organizations that are offering online English classes and other courses that individuals can take. And I, I can tell you that I've talked to a lot of people who are already not claimants, but just like regular people who are already using those resources because they're afraid that after all of this is over, They're not going to be able to go back to their job because their employer's gone out of business and so forth. So these resources are really available to the claimants. Um, I really don't believe that a claimant doesn't know how to use a computer in this day and age or has a family member who doesn't know how to do it. And they can still go online, look for work. I've seen several ads since this started that they're looking for people to work from home to do like data entry and you know, remote kind of work because they're, the employers don't want to do um, have their their employees uh, have physical contact, everything. So I personally think that there's a lot of resources that claimants can make use of to try to get a job even from home. Right? Um, they can do that sedentary work. I know. I know. Now we're getting into situations where they're like, "Oh, well, I can't do any work." because of all of my job restrictions, but you're home because of COVID anyway, because you can't go out and you're still functioning at some capacity so you can do this remote kind of work. So with all that being said and done, I think we do have a viable um, argument that the matter should be set for labor market attachments, that it shouldn't be put off. I think we should file appeals whenever we can. And, you know, I I think this is the opportunity, so we don't know how the board's going to address these appeals or these arguments that we're making. We've seen in the past where the third department has really come back at the board and uh, scrutinized their, you know, um, them not properly applying the case law or the laws in general. And I think this is a situation where the board is just not applying the law properly. The law says a claimant who is found to be to have a less than total disability has an ongoing obligation to look for work. This particular situation, I understand what's going on, but there's still ways that the claimant could look for work. It's not like New York is shut down completely. Um, so, with, so, so what I was going to say is that even with filing appeals, I think from a strategic perspective, I think it can help to give um, settlement leverage because a lot of claimants are out of work. We don't know when they're going to go back to work. Their family members may also be out of work. They are looking at a couple of extra dollars in their pocket. So, you know, filing an appeal where they're not getting their benefits. I think it could be helpful in settling out some cases, which is what our clients generally want. Close out the cases so we don't have to deal with them anymore.
0: Yeah, I think that was uh, kind of the experience that that I've been having as well. Uh, I know that uh, judges have this blurb, something that's been given to them. I I think it's uh, very interesting, uh, you know, just on the idea that, You know, a judicial decision is being kind of pushed above their level uh, from some person that's saying read these five sentences into the record uh, and then going into the text of that statement uh, and how incorrect it actually is. One, uh, if there is a blurb that the judges are being directed to read, who is it coming from? Is it coming from a senior law judge? Is it coming from a board examiner? Is it coming from the board panel? Is it coming from the chair? Is it coming from Clarissa Rodriguez herself uh, to kind of, you know, give us some kind of idea of what's going to happen? Um, I think we should have the right to know how these, you know, workings are are coming to fruition. Uh, But the, the text of the judge's blurb actually is incorrect right? Because the question posed to you in your case, Tashia, was how can a claimant be expected to gain employment due to the executive order? And that misses the attachment point completely because attachment does not require that they actually gain the job. Attachment just requires that they perform either an independent work search or actively participate in vocational rehabilitation pursuant to cases like American Axel and resulting uh, progeny cases, it's not requiring them to obtain the job. And you mentioned that it actually might be easier because, yes, that's correct. If they perform a timely, diligent, and persistent look for work, search for work, then if they can provide evidence that the employer is not hiring due to COVID-19, they would have completed their requirement to attach to the labor market, at least for that particular job. Right. But you, to Put the cart before the horse and say we're preventing this is a complete conflict with it exactly what the board is doing, right? The board established virtual hearings in 2017, and we're benefiting from that because we can now conduct business in a way that doesn't require us to all be in the office, to all be in the courtroom. So we're saying this technology is good for this purpose, but for attachment, no. You can you can appear for a virtual hearing, claimant. But those websites that allow remote training, Indeed.com, that doesn't work anymore. Google, Monster, all these other avenues—they are no longer in working form, according to the board. And I think you know if if we have a client such as, of course, is ready to go to um, the next level and appeal, and maybe even to the third department, I could see. The third department, you know, kind of looking down on on our little administrative industry and say, you know what, if you want to change the law, there's a legislative way to do it. Change the statute, create a new one. Uh, Otherwise, don't abuse the discretion of an administrative function by saying you can't pursue a defense that's codified and created in presidential case law.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see a lot of these findings by the judge declining to set the claims for labor market attachments. We just have to keep uh, raising the defenses and pursue them. If an appeal is necessary, just file the appeal and hopefully the board's going to take the right approach to this.
0: Right. So I think that covers a lot of what we wanted to discuss today. If I could tie it all up for everyone here, um, you know, we are still, Defending from day one, we are still, uh, you know, defending employers across the great state of New York and New Jersey, uh, as well as federal longshore uh, issues that may arise in some of our clients' claims. Um, the coronavirus and COVID-19 has changed the uh the mode or the method in which we provide service to our clients uh, but it has not stopped the actual service Uh, if anybody wants to locate um, our coronavirus and covid19 materials uh, it is loisllc.com slash coronavirus uh, and the most recent addition to that uh, section of our website deals with questions employers can ask of their case population of their employee population to determine what are their next steps to take, uh, in preparing for workers' compensation claims associated with coronavirus and COVID-19, Tashi, I don't know if you have anything else to add, but I thought this was a a great recitation of some of the things you're involved with as uh, the construction practice team leader at our firm. I know that the two of us uh, had a scheduled trip to Dallas for uh, a CLM conference last month that was canceled due to this issue. Uh, I was very much excited and looking forward to hearing you speak about uh, the issues facing workers' compensation and the crossover and cross jurisdiction appeal of general liability claims and how uh, we can work together. Uh, I'm hopeful that once, uh, our world changes for the better that, uh, those, uh, types of events can be resuscitated. Uh, so, and, and, you know, uh, to, to all of our Dallas clients, we will be, uh, making a trip there to see you and, and catch up, uh, because we're not going to let this derail, uh, our practice and our schedule. Uh, so, uh, does anything else before we close?
1: Um, no, I think I think I think that's it. Um, uh, hopefully, after all of this is over, we'll be you know back to normal with the board and their um, very interesting directives. Hopefully, we can go back to you know uh, the judges actually applying the law and we don't have to uh, bombard the board with all of the appeals again, um, but it's just something we'll have to wait and see what happens. And yes, I am looking forward to a trip to Dallas in the near future. I was really disappointed that it was canceled, um, but it'll happen again.
0: Good. So for my partner, Tashia Razul, uh, my name is Christian Sison, reminding you to defend from day one. Thanks, everybody.